Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer that you would, in this time, cause our faith to rise and our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. I pray as this word is preached that it would be seen as words of truth that prevail over our unbelief. Thank you for the clarity of your word. It's like a sword that cuts deep and where we would step back in a shame nature of what it says, Lord, it, it confronts us with clear truth that we must handle. And it leaves us no room to hide. Calls us to rejoice in the clarity of your word. Because through it, we see your glory. And where we have unanswered questions, or where we find confusion or apparent mystery, Lord, calls us to rejoice all the more in your bigness. And help us to trust what it says more than what we would doubt in our hearts because of our limited ability. Exalt yourself, the glory of Christ, and your grandeur in all the earth, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 49. I am amazed that in God's providence, I am preaching this text on this Sunday. This is my last sermon in Genesis. We have been studying this wonderful book since October of 2020. That means with a few breaks here and there, we have studied this beginning book for 20 months. 51 sermons in all. A book with 50 chapters in it, it is by far the longest book I have ever preached through. And today we come to the final text and I am amazed, truly amazed after 20 months, 50 sermons on the 51st, ser 51st sermon that it would be this particular text after this particular week on this particular Sunday. Well, why am I amazed? I think it will be clear shortly. I wanted to preach through Genesis in the beginning because of its foundational nature. Everything we study as a church, everything we believe as a church is built upon the foundational truths of this book. In fact, everything we know of the world can be found in principle in this beginning book. You can live life and experience the world and engage in culture, but you'll never do so properly in the way that God designed unless you do so with the lens of this book filtering everything you see. It's been my hope that through the expositional preaching of this book that you have gained awareness 
further clarity or a deeper love for God as six foundational themes have risen to the surface of this book. There's much that I have said about the content of this beginning book, but if I were to boil it down to its major themes and what I hope for you in them, it would be these six themes. First, I hope you have been reminded of the elementary truth that everything must start with God. In the beginning, God. In our sinful nature, we hate that line. In our sinful nature, we see the very first letter of that verse, I, and we don't see anything else. It's where we've fundamentally gone wrong as a human race. In the beginning of everything we do, we don't think of God, but of ourselves. It's what led Adam and Eve to turn in rebellion. It's what still leads us to prefer our sin instead of the glory of God. Because in the back of our minds, in the forefront of our hearts, we have built our entire lives around our self-interest. But Genesis has called us back to see over and over that if we're going to flourish in any way that God intended, we must see God as the beginning, middle, and end and everything that permeates our entire existence. We must see him as creator king. And we must see our position as not standing in defiance to him, but bowing in submission to him. And God is our creator We are his creatures. Everything must start with him. And the answer to our rebellious question of, well, why does it have to be like that, is a very simple truth of because God said so, period. Everything must start with God. Second, I hope you have been emboldened to declare with certainty what it means to be human. We see all sorts of human actions in Genesis. But don't forget first that this is a book that tells the origins of humans to begin with. And we live in a culture today where I'm amazed that the stating of simple, obvious, historically recognized truths have become so controversial to be met with hostility and ostracization, especially concerning what it means to be humans and how humans should live. And listen, you you don't need to be a scholar to speak on these things. You just have to be a faithful, humble Christian who's willing to be unashamed to declare with patience and love what it means to be a human. It's absurd how complicated our society has made this. God gives us this information in Genesis. And no, we don't have to be a biologist to know it. In Genesis, we see God is the creator of all life, breathing very life into our lungs. In Genesis, we see that it's God that begins life and ends life. In Genesis, we see that when women are pregnant, 
They're pregnant with babies. From conception to birth, protected in the womb of a woman, put together by the very hands of God. In Genesis, God makes humans in his own image to glorify himself in the world and not with vague to be determined genders. No, in Genesis, we see God makes humans male and female, equal in dignity, different in form and function. In in Genesis, we are introduced to the fundamental elements of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And I am amazed at what simple things have to be stated clearly these days and what comes across as controversial. If you want to live a revolutionary life, you don't have to do much. All you have to do is be willing to state the clear and obvious and historically recognized truths of Scripture. And you will be met with a society that calls you radical, but by a God who calls you faithful. Genesis shows us what it means to be human. Third, I hope you have sensed the critical nature, the critical nature and centrality of the family unit. God has ordained three institutions, governing authorities, the church of Jesus Christ, and the family unit. In the beginning, God puts the husband and wife together, Adam and Eve, in an exclusive relationship where companionship and sexual intimacy thrive. And God designed the marriage in such a way that flourishing only comes through that design. So that the one man is reserved for the one woman and the one woman is reserved for, for the one man, for the one woman reserved for the one man in a holy marriage. And it's through that relationship and that relationship alone does God's blessings and procreation flow. It's in this good design from God that he has sought to protect us from sinful relationships like adultery and pornography and homosexuality and fornication and more. From the beginning, we see in Genesis, God intended flourishing life to come from one husband and one wife who then build a family, for fathers to lead out humbly in service and sacrifice, and for mothers to then come and provide nourishment and guidance. Christian uh, children who then live in a family unit where God is king and mom and dad are dispensing love and discipline in right and godly ways in a consistent and stable, secure environment. We hear a lot of talk about fixing a nation. If you want to fix a nation, start where God started with the family unit living under his kingship. Number four, I hope in our study of Genesis, you have seen the catastrophic effect of forsaking God, a path that leads to evil, corruption, and destruction. What has been more clear in Genesis than the destruction that sin leads to? From the garden to Cain, to the flood, to the Tower of Babel, to the warring nations, the unfaithful people of God, to Sodom and Gomorrah, to the endless genealogies that all end in death. 
Genesis makes clear, when you rebel against God, your path ends in destruction. Genesis makes plain the answer to the popular question, what's wrong with the world? Why is the world the way it is? Genesis tells us the world is the way it is fundamentally because of sin. It's the fundamental answer to the problems of this world. Ultimately, Salvador Ramos did what he did because not ultimately of a problem with gun policy or not ultimately because of school safety, not ultimately because of mental health. Ramos did a wicked and evil thing because he was a wicked and evil sinner. And that's not to say that politics has no place in this or school policy has no part in this, but Genesis teaches us to get to the root of the matter. And if we get to the root of the matter and we discover spiritual rot, then worldly solutions will not be the ultimate solution, but it will be a spiritual one where God rescues us out of the pit of sin. Fifth, I hope through our study of Genesis, you have grown in your understanding of God's covenant love for his children in Christ. For every circumstance we see in Genesis of the wickedness of man on display, there's a light showing the covenant faithfulness of God. If Genesis is anything, it's a book of covenant. And many people know of God's general love But Genesis introduces us to God's covenant love. Similar to the love that you may have for your own children, it's a love far greater God has committed to his children. In Genesis, while all of humanity is on the dark path of rebellion, it's been clear that God's covenant love would be extended to those specifically of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Judah and the Lion of Judah and everyone trusting in that Lion, Jesus Christ. And the rest of the Bible shows God's keeping his promise to Abraham. So it's been my hope, if you're a Christian in the room, that through our study, you have grown in your understanding of God's particular covenantal electing love for you. A love beyond his love for you as his creation. It's a love he has committed to you as his son or daughter in Christ. These are five themes that have surfaced again and again in our study. It all starts with God. He shows us what it means to be human. He has established the family unit. We have seen disaster for forsaking him, and we've seen the covenant grace of God call back again and again. I hope those themes have been clear. But all of that so far has been the longest introduction probably to a sermon that you've ever heard. Because we have one final text And in it climaxes the final theme of Genesis. I said there were six. It will not surprise you. It has been a theme that has been the thread of this Joseph narrative from the beginning, studying 14 chapters in a row through Genesis. And the sixth and final theme highlighted in Genesis that I'd have you see is this. I hope you have gained a theology of the pervasive sovereignty and providence of God. 
a theology of the pervasive sovereignty and providence of God. This book ends with one of the most popular lines in all of the Bible. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now I'm gonna read our final text starting in Genesis 49 starting in verse 29. And as I do, there are gonna be four distinct sections. I want you to be looking for four distinct words. Death, mourning, fear, and faith. Death, mourning, fear, and faith. That's the outline of the the text we're reading. So Genesis 49, starting in verse 29. Then he commanded them, this is right after Jacob has blessed his sons. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of the Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Death. Chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There There you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up and buried his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Verse 9. And when they went up with him, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the floor, on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Mourning. 
Chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when he, they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Fear. Finally, chapter 50, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Faith. This final text in Genesis is broken down into four sections. The first section is 49, 29 to 33, detailing Jacob's request to be buried and his death. The second section, chapter 50, verse one through 14, showing Joseph asking Pharaoh to leave Egypt to bury his father and the people mourning. The third section, chapter 50, 15 to 21, Joseph's brothers living in fear because of what he might do to them. And the final section, 50, 22 to 26, which shows Joseph's death and final faith. I've said the section can be summarized in four words, death, mourning, fear, and faith. The death of Jacob, the mourning of a community, the fear of the brothers, and the faith of Joseph. The tone is unmistakable. I hope you see this. The attitude, the environment, the tenor, the, the feel of this narrative is unmistakable. Death, mourning, fear. Which is why I'm amazed that in the providence and timing of God that I'm preaching this text on this Sunday after this particular week when our nation, especially Uvalde, Texas, has known death, mourning, and fear. And this is why sermons matter, one reason at least. Because you all go throughout your weeks in various places and various circumstances, experiencing different successes and failures and heartbreaks, grief, joys, pain, they're all different for each of your lives. And then we all come together from different spots from our lives every week to this one place and listen to a sermon. Why? Not so we can hear what man thinks, but so we can hear what God says for our lives and all of their various circumstances. 
Committing yourself to a sermon every week is not committing yourself to any man. Committing yourself to a sermon every week is committing yourself to hearing and believing what God has to say is most relevant in your life. Which means this is one of the most critical points of your week. And the avoidance of this time is the height of human arrogance. No thanks, God. I don't need what you have to say. And so I'm amazed that the tone of this text that God has for us this week is filled with death, mourning, and fear given the events of our nation. Now I understand that the circumstances of death, mourning, and fear in our text, it's very different from the circumstances of death, mourning, and fear of this past week. Genesis 49 shows the expected death of Jacob, not the horrific tragedy of young children. Genesis 50 shows a community mourning the loss of a respected patriarch, not mourning the death of the most vulnerable. Genesis 50 shows the brothers fearing Joseph's reaction, not a community fearing their worst of fears. This is not a one-to-one correlation. Don't hear me wrong. That's not what I'm saying But the principal elements are the same. A world experiencing death, a community experiencing mourning, and individuals fearing the unknown. And as these emotions hit, I'm sure you have noticed everyone has an opinion. (laughs) But what would God have to say about such times as these? And brothers and sisters, God has much to say. He's spoken a whole book full of things to say for times just like this. And it takes pastoral wisdom, of course, to know which message from God is right for various circumstances. I mean, the people, individuals that are closer to Uvalde, Texas, the closer you are to tragedy, the more sensitive it becomes. The statement, God is sovereign, is wonderfully true, but it's not what you say to the mother laid out on the sidewalk wailing for her children who never come out. At least not what you say first. In the peak of mourning, individuals need more of a pastor than they do a preacher, more of a shepherd than an orator, someone who will sit with them and hug them and weep with them and not preach at them in their grief. I prayed for Lonnie Moore in the pastoral prayer this morning, the pastor at First Baptist Church, Uvalde, who is about to preach this very morning to a community of broken hearts, possibly the hardest message that he has ever preached in his life. And the appropriate theme will be the steadfast love and comfort of God. But the further you are away from tragedy, when you're not in the midst of it yourself. God wants you to have specifically a theology of his sovereignty that will anchor your life when your tragedy does come. I aim to preach theologically rich sermons every week not to show off some kind of theological knowledge. Lord forbid that ever be the case. I aim to preach theologically rich sermons every week so that when I meet you in your tragedy, I don't ask you catechism questions. 
Instead, as you're on your knees in grief, you reach down and you grab a hold of an anchor in your soul that's already there. And you hold on. In the hurricane, you hold on. But what do you do before the hurricane? You prepare. You board up windows. You tighten things down. Brothers and sisters, do you have an anchor of God's sovereignty, a theology of his providence that will hold true through the storms of life? The theme that we're closing the book of Genesis today shows us a theology of God's sovereignty and providence that seeks to prepare you for your tragedy, your season of death, mourning, and fear. And for the purpose of this sermon, I want to focus on the third and fourth sections of this text. The first section shows Jacob's death. The second shows the community mourning for Jacob. But I want to jump to the third section where Joseph's brothers are now fearing him because their father is now dead. Why would they fear him? Because they're, now they're thinking, now that he's gone, Joseph has no reason to withhold his revenge any longer. He's going to get it, give it to us. So they say to him in chapter 50, verse 16, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of your God, of your father. Joseph wept when he spoke to them. Now notice what Joseph says in response to them first. This is chapter 50, verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Everything starts with God. Joseph says, God is the judge of your actions, not me. Don't fear me. I'm not God. I've found this to be one of the most helpful questions we can ask in our times and situations where we don't understand, where we're kind of confused about God's actions, will we ask ourselves, am I in the place of God? This is similar to the rebuke God gives Job in Job 38. Remember, Job experienced horrendous tragedy. He lost everything he owned, family members, loved ones, friends. And at the end of his grief, God questions Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, who determined its measurement? Surely you know, Job. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Then Job answered, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In seasons of death and mourning and fear, when opinions are like raindrops, they're everywhere. They're hard to avoid. You go outside, you're going to get hit with one. We need first to remember Joseph's question Am I in the place of God? Second, look what Joseph says in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph doesn't hate his brothers. He doesn't seek revenge. Why? Because he knows what they did to him is actually serving God's greater purpose. Verse 20, that many people should be kept alive today. God placed me in Israel, I mean in Egypt, in this position of authority. And so get the main push of this text. Joseph knows that even though his brothers committed an awful evil, God had a greater purpose in and through it. And that's the anchor of your soul. That's what you take away. You may not feel need for it right now, but eventually the storm will come. You need to deposit this truth into your reservoir right now. In times of great evil, God is working for greater purposes. In times of great evil, God is working for greater purposes. Now, see this in the text. Chapter 50, verse 20, one of the most popular lines in all the Bible. One of the main reasons I wanted to preach this book. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, each word is critical. Each word, you, the brothers, meant, intended, evil, hurt, against, in opposition, me, Joseph. The brothers opposed Joseph and intended to hurt him. You meant evil against me. But there's a counterpart, a parallel statement. And what parallels is what God is doing. While the brothers were acting and intending and meaning, what was God doing? Second half, but God meant it for good. Each word is critical here as well. God meant, and this is the same word, the same meant as the brothers have. Both, notice, are intending for something to happen. The brothers meant and God meant. They're intending for something to happen. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. It's not, notice, the brothers meant, but God used. It's not the brothers meant, but God adjusted. No, the brothers meant evil, but God meant it for good. Same word, both have intentions for the evil that's occurring. God meant it. Now, what is it? The brothers meant evil, but God meant it, that evil. You say, wait a minute, what? This is clear in the English. It's even more clear in the Hebrew. When the text says God meant it, the word it is a third person singular. And it's antecedent in the sentence is the evil that was preceding it, which is also third person singular. Now, if the syntax and the grammar of all that doesn't mean anything for you, here's the point. When Joseph says God meant it, he's referring directly to the evil that the brothers meant. So that the text really says God meant it. God meant your evil for good. You meant evil against me, 
but God meant that evil for me. You meant evil against me for harm. God meant that evil for my good. This is why Joseph is steady. Remember a few weeks ago, stabilized by the sovereignty of God? This is why, because he has a theology of God's providence that teaches him, even in times of great evil, God is working for greater purposes. Now notice how it concludes in verse 21. So do not fear. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Does your theology comfort you? Do not fear, thus he comforted them. How is it comforting? He's comforting them with the assurance that God is sovereign and providential in all of this. Don't fear, you meant an awful evil, but I know God meant it for good. Christian theology is not to be dry and boring. Theology, when preached correctly, is to meant to comfort you. So memorize Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he works all things together for their good according to his purpose. And this is not a one-off occurrence in the Bible. You can look all throughout the Bible and we see God positioning all things, even evil things, for the purposes of his glory. And it's not as if Joseph misspoke. You know, maybe he, maybe he meant to say, you meant evil against me, but God will now turn it for good. We're gonna sing a song in just a moment called Sovereign Over Us. You've, you've heard it before here. I love this song. I requested this song this week. But there's a bridge in the song it's not wrong, it's just not as precise as Genesis 50-20. So in a moment, we're gonna sing, maybe you'll remember a part of the song it says in the bridge, even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good, you turn it for our good and for your glory. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. Now that's wonderfully true, it's just not as precise as Genesis 50-20. And every time I sing that song, I sing even what the enemy means for evil, you mean it for good. You mean it for good and for our glory. And here's why it matters. God is not reactionary to the evil of this world. There's not a cosmic battle between God and Satan where Satan makes a move first and then God plays catch up and tries to fix it. God is not surprised by evil in our world. God is not frantically working so that he gets everything back on track when Satan makes another move. He's not simply turning events as though they were briefly out of his control for a moment or his knowledge, but then he gets them back in the direction he wants. The passenger on the Titanic supposedly said, not even God can sink this ship. And then what happens? Does Satan plop a, an iceberg and then God is only responsible to turn the ship or not if he wants to? No, what if God is meaning for purposes beyond that we could ever know for that ship to hit? To accomplish greater purposes, far superior to bring about good than the, than the evil could ever bring about. 
I praise God for the clarity of his word because there's no getting around what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In the works of great evil, God is working greater purposes. You can look at the great evils of history and know with unshakable certainty that God was not absent, short-armed, incompetent, inactive, but in each one, always working for greater purposes. And have Christians standing in the Roman Colosseum and their bodies are being shredded by wild beasts. A horrific evil meant for greater purposes. Millions of Jews dead in the Holocaust, a great evil meant for greater purposes. Horrors of world wars, great evil meant for greater purposes. Terrorists violently striking 9-11. Inhuman slave trades and city bombers and plaudits attacks, all great evil meant for greater purposes. And God is always working through the great evils of our world to bring about his greater good purposes. And you say, I don't know if I can stomach a God like that. Well, friend, just briefly consider the alternative. Consider the alternative. A God who has no knowledge and no control over the evil that's gonna come into your life. A God that can only watch a nation be viciously attacked. A God who cannot intervene while a chaotic world turns on itself. A God who doesn't know it's coming, or if he does, he doesn't do anything about it. A God who looks at you in your tragedy and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. Now, what kind of a God is that? If you can't stomach a God who works through evil for greater purposes, then what will you do with a God who is distant, powerless, and inactive, but says, I love you, but can't do anything for you? It's no help at all. No, the God of the Bible is the God who can look at you in your tragedy and say, I know it hurts and it was a great evil that will be punished. But you can count on this. I'm in control even in this and I have purposed it for your good and it's not pointless. Do you want a world where evil is random and God has no control or do you want a world where evil is leashed and God is working his good purposes through it. This truth in times of great evil, God is working for greater purposes, doesn't answer all of our questions. In fact, it raises a lot of hard questions. How is man held accountable for evil if God meant evil for good? How is man acting in evil while God is acting in good? How can God be holy and just while permitting evil? Why does God judge evil men for crimes he used for greater purposes? Listen, they're good questions. I've tried to deal with some of those. In fact, some of those questions, I would invite you to go listen a few weeks ago to Genesis 45. Go listen a year or two ago of a sermon on Titus 1. This truth of God what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Great evils, God's working greater purposes. The truth doesn't answer all our questions, but when tragedy strikes, we may say it's evil, 
and wicked and senseless and horrific and vile and heartless, but we dare not say God had no control. I would encourage you to take God's word at what it says. It doesn't mean we understand it all. As you feel the mystery in this, ask yourself Joseph's question, am I in the place of God? Believe what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And what has been revealed to us in Genesis is clear. The brothers meant evil against Joseph, but God meant it for good. In times of great evil, God is working for greater purposes. Now here's where I want to close, the very last section of Genesis 50. All of what I've said this morning takes great faith, does it not? And this is exactly where the chapter ends, verse 24, look what it says. Joseph's on his deathbed, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the verse that Joseph is commended for in the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11. He's commended for his faith that even on his deathbed, he's believing God will hold his promise true and will bring us to the promised land. You don't have to understand all of the why and how questions of God. Often in tragedy, we often feel the most helpless in those areas anyway. But Joseph didn't understand the why and how God would bring them out of Egypt, but he believed it and he died in faith. In the great evils of the world, God is working greater purposes, all while being righteous, all while being just, all while being in control. Do you believe this great and clear truth that even what the enemy means for evil God means it for your good. And it's that truth that is ringing in the ears of the people the rest of the Bible as this beginning book closes. And it's that truth that must be ringing in our ears that will carry us in our moment of tragedy. Let's pray. Father, what a hard reality to wrap our human minds around. Lord, it is not easy to understand your ways, but we do know your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than ours. So I pray for my own heart and for the people sitting in this room that you will prepare us for tragedy and that we will have an anchor in our soul to know that when tragedy strikes, it's not pointless. It's purposeful. Lord, we cannot create that faith in ourselves. We need you to do a supernatural work. Show us your glory and your sovereignty and providence and make it carry us through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.